we welcome you this morning to Bible class and our listening audience on KFUO as we continue our study of Romans. And we're going to begin this week at Romans chapter 9, verse 19. Verse 19. We got through 18 last week. 19 builds on that, but verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he find fault for who can resist his will? Okay, so we're building upon the last verse we talked about last week was when God was talking about the fact, or, or God's word was talking about the fact that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And we talked about that, that, that he had hardened his own heart through many of the first plagues, okay? And that God then hardened his heart. Uh, the questions asked here are, uh, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? If he can harden someone's heart, then how can he find fault with that person? And the second question is, for who can resist his will? Now, let's do some definition and defining here. Anyone can resist God's gracious offer of forgiveness and life in Jesus Christ. Any human being in their sinful nature can resist God's free offer of forgiveness and life. If you start in believing the concept of irresistible grace, in other words, that when God invites you to believe, you can't resist, and you believe it, then you're on the road to double predestination. That is a tenet of double predestination, that you can't resist God's grace. The fact is, you can't. The sinful human being can resist God's offer of forgiveness and life in Jesus Christ. We see it in our lives, we see it in the lives of others, that they choose to resist God's grace. Now, Pharaoh chose to resist God's grace to resist the Word of God. And he was hardened in that unbelief. But what he couldn't do is stop the will of God. So, he could stop, he could refuse to believe, but he could not stop he could not stop God from saving Israel and bring them out of Egypt. He couldn't stop that. So in spite of his resistance, God did it anyway. Here's the point. Every one of us resists God at some point in our life. Can you say honestly you never resisted God? You always do what he says. You always do his will. Everybody resists God. But God can use it in his plan, in his plan, in spite of our resistance, God continues to show mercy. He continue, continues to show mercy. 
over and over and over again. So even when we resist, he continues to show us mercy. He continues to call us back. He wants us as his own. He wants to save us. He wanted to save Pharaoh. But the fact is, we do not believe in irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. Because that would mean that God offers grace to some and not to others. He only offers it to the ones he knows will believe. No. He offered it to Pharaoh. He offers it to all. Now this is hard, so Paul knows that, so he asks a very pointed question in verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? The best translation of that is, who are you to talk back to God? Who are you to question what God's doing? You're in over your head. Silence. Who are you to question God? Okay. And then it gives an example. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable use? Now, this clay potter imagery is used in the book of Isaiah. It's used in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, the potter and the clay. And of course, God is the potter. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump? Okay. It is the potter, it is God who is doing this. And then we get into these ter two terms. One vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. And we say, ah, there it is. God is creating people for heaven or hell. And that's not what it says. How many potters do you know that make great vases so they can smash them on the floor? They don't do that. And the problem is in the translation. And it's not a good translation. Uh, the better way to say it would be something like this. Uh, Martin Franzman, the great theologian, translates it like this. One vessel for beauty for beautiful use, and one vessel for menial use. Other translations say one vessel for noble use and one vessel for common use, or one vessel for honorable use and one for ordinary use. Okay. The implication is not that God makes vessels to destroy them. Okay? It's kind of like in life. At home. You're going to have a dinner party. Are you going to use the china? Or are you going to use the ordinary everyday dishes? Are you going to use the uh, decorative bowl? on the mantle, or are you going to use a dishpan? Okay? The point is, in God's history of salvation, He uses everybody. He used Abraham. He used Sarah. He used Isaac. But he also used Hagar and Ishmael. He used Jacob, but he used Esau. 
He used Moses, but he used Pharaoh too. He uses everybody in his plan of salvation to make it come to be. But he does not create vessels for destruction. Okay? The pot made for menial use then does not tell the potter, you screwed up and made me wrong. Who are you to talk back to God? Who are you to talk back to God? So be it one use or another use, God is using them in his plan of salvation. But that does not mean that they are created for destruction. The destruction comes because of their resistance to the gospel of God. Don't talk back to God. Okay? Now I'm going to stop there and see if you've got any questions that I can possibly answer. Okay? Yes, Ruth. Yes. You nailed it, Ruth. Uh, she said, we've got a lot of people right now talking back to God saying, you didn't make me right. I'm a man, but I want to be a woman. Vice versa. That's an example. An example. Now, this imagery continues. Okay? We're not done with this imagery. Yes. It, that's basically what it means. It, God allowed him to do what he wanted, and he didn't intervene. Okay? He didn't intervene. That still doesn't mean he didn't want to save him in the first place. That's the thing we have to keep in mind. If we fall into the trap that, okay, God wanted Pharaoh to go to hell, and he made him do that, then the problems begin. He wanted the word of God that Moses spoke to him to change his heart. It did not. So God gave him up to his own sinfulness. That's really what's being said. Really what's being said. Okay, let's go on. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? All right, this is going to take some... We're all vessels of wrath when we're born into this world. Every one of us. Let me read this verse from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All mankind are children of wrath. When we're born into this world, we are children of wrath. But the key word here is, God is patient. 
He's patient with the vessels of wrath. Why is he patient? Because he wants to save the vessels of wrath. And we're all vessels of wrath. Okay? We're all vessels of wrath. God wants to save us. Apart from God's intervention, we are all vessels of wrath. God still deals with those who are vessels of wrath with patience and kindness in the hope of bringing them to repentance. That they are objects of wrath does not imply they must remain objects of wrath. It's not saying you're an object of wrath, you're a children of wrath forever. Otherwise, that sentence, that phrase wouldn't be in there that he deals with them with patience. If he didn't deal with them in patience, yeah, you're in trouble. But he deals with patience. It is his desire that they come to repentance and faith. And so he deals patiently with them. How many people do we know that had no faith in God and yet God worked in their lives for years, and finally they came to faith. He was patient with them. He showed his kindness and love to them. And that's what it means that he's patient with them. Now that last phrase can confuse us if we're not careful. Because the last phrase is, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. What it's saying is this, if you remain a vessel of wrath, there is destruction. It's not saying you have to remain a vessel of wrath. It's not saying that God created you to be a vessel of wrath. It's saying, if you remain a vessel of wrath, you are headed for destruction. And we only know that because of the next phrase, the next part of the verse. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Look at the verse beforehand. That's the key to understanding it. He did not prepare vessels of wrath to remain vessels of wrath. He wanted to save them. But if they reject his son and the gospel, they are headed for destruction. On the other hand, he has prepared it beforehand that those who believe in his son receive glory. That he prepared beforehand. It says before the foundation of the world, he prepared it. So those who would believe in his Son would have forgiveness and everlasting life. That he prepared beforehand, but he never wanted to send people to hell. The key is the word beforehand. Okay? Yes, Janet. Uh, he, he fit in the sense that they had personal faith in Jesus Christ. It, well, but it's, what it's saying is, those who believe receive glory. He's prepared beforehand. He's prepared. 
He's going to try to save everybody. But some are going to reject him. Some are going to reject him. But he's going to use everything in his plan for salvation. Okay? And he can use nations like Israel. He can use uh, individuals. Uh, we have to always keep... Um, it says they're headed for destruction, not created for destruction. Okay. Because there's no reference to beforehand when he's talking about vessels of wrath because it applies to everybody. Because everybody is a vessel of wrath. Questions again? Don't be afraid to ask. I just not may be able to answer it. Okay. It kind of makes you not want to ask a question when it says, who are you to talk back to God? I mean, that just kind of, that, that, that just kind of dampens the questions, don't it? Yes. Well, he created a perfect creation. The question is, why did God have all this happen? Why didn't he just create us and keep us in heaven? God created us because he wanted somebody to love. And his creation, we turned his creation against him. Why did he decide to create the world when he knew what was going to happen? I don't know. That's above my pay grade. I don't know. But the glorious thing is, even though we destroyed his creation, he made the decision to save us. He could have just said, I'm done with you. I'm through. But he made the decision to save us through his son. Okay? Through his son. All right, now, let's see. Uh, verse, okay, for glory. Even us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, I want you to remember what we talked about at the beginning of chapter 9. What is the purpose of chapter 9? The purpose of chapter 9 is to say that the Word of God has not failed. Remember that? That was last week. The Word of God has not failed. Even though there are Jews among the children of Israel who do not believe, it does not mean that God's word has failed. So we're coming full circle here, and what he's saying is he has called vessels of mercy that have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ through the power of God and they will receive glory. He prepared it before the foundation of the world and it's for both Jews and Gentiles. The word has not failed. It is still calling people to faith both Jews and Gentiles, to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is the theme verse for Romans? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation 
to all who believe, first the Jew, then the Gentile. That's the theme verse of Romans. And here Paul is reiterating that. The power of the gospel is indeed calling both Jews and Gentiles to faith in Jesus Christ. It's changing them from vessels of wrath to vessels of mercy, and God is going to pour out His mercy on them, and they're going to receive the glory through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, all right, so um, this provides assurance for us, but the assurance is only in one direction. <laughs> you believe in Christ, you're assured of glory. No assurance in the other direction. Mark Bender asked that question last week. How do you find comfort if you believe in double predestination? And the answer is, there is none. Because you don't know which side you're on. But the assurance is, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you're going to have the glory. You're going to inherit eternal life. That's the assurance. But it's only in one direction. Sinners are justifiably vessels of wrath headed for destruction apart from God's mercy in Christ. God wills to show mercy to all. Unfortunately, a human being can forfeit his mercy in two ways. First, unbelief. And second, trying to get to heaven by works. Both ways are a forfeiture of God's mercy, God's grace. Okay? You can reject it either way. Okay? Grace is resistible. Now, within these verses there's a phrase that recurs, not only, but also. So let me give you some examples. Not only mercy, but also compassion. Not only mercy, but also hardening. Not only honorable, but also ordinary. Not only wrath, but also saving power. Not only vessels of wrath, but also vessels of mercy. Not only Jews, but also Gentiles. It is a, uh, a stylistic form that Paul is using throughout this chapter. And it's pointing us, I will admit, if you're just sitting there doing your Bible reading and you read through these verses in chapter 9, you're most likely going to come to the wrong conclusions. These are very, very difficult verses. Very, very difficult. That's the very reason you call pastors because they make us study this stuff. Even the stuff that's not fun. Because the thing about the Word of God is it's not easy. There are parts that are beyond us. And so we simply have to study further. And that's one of the reasons they have us learn Greek and Hebrew. You can't get the meaning out of this without knowing that. 
You can't do it. Okay. So I want to go on because I want to try to get to a certain point today. So now Paul decides to quote the prophets. As indeed he says in Hosea. Now let's review about Hosea for just a minute. Hosea was the prophet that God told, go find a prostitute and marry her and have children. Biblical trivia. Does anybody remember the name of the prostitute? It's a horrible name. Gomer. He married a prostitute named Gomer. Okay. Now, he had three children. Of significance is the last one, and he was named Loami, which means in Hebrew, not my people. And God had Hosea name him that because he was rejecting his people because they had sinned and gone after idols. Both the kingdom of the north, the kingdom of Israel, and the kingdom of the south, the kingdom of Judah, both kingdoms would be destroyed. Kingdom of the north were carried off into Assyria in 722 B.C. And the kingdom of Judah was carried off to Babylon in 587 B.C. Okay? God rejected them. Now we can look at the verses in Hosea that he quotes. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So what is God saying? He rejected them. He rejected them because they went after idols, but there will come a day when he will call them my people again. There will come a day they will be called sons of the living God again. Okay? What he's talking about is when he restored the Jews, when he restored the Jews, and they came home to Jerusalem, rebuilt the temple. Only Paul is not applying it that way. Paul is applying this passage to the Gentile. He is applying this passage to the Gentiles. Now let's read it again, but let's think if he's talking about Gentiles. Those who were not my people, he didn't call them, he called Israel. And her who was not, uh, uh, I will call my people, Gentiles. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in this very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And he's talking to Gentiles. The verses 
did not really mean that when the prophet Hosea first spoke them, they were being applied to Jews. Now the Apostle Paul, and we would definitely say through divine inspiration, is applying the verses is applying the verses that were for the Jews now to the Gentiles because God is going to call them to Christ too. He's expanding the meaning of these verses to mean not only Jews, but Gentiles. And that was his mission but he quotes more. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the numbers of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Okay, again, this was spoken to exiles. There's the first part, uh, be as the sand of the sea. That was the promise to Abraham. And then there's a translation problem here. Only a remnant of them will be saved. There is no word only in the, Hebrew, in the Greek text. It should read, though the number of sons of Israel, of the sons of Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will be saved. Okay. Now, we've always, you've heard that verse applied. Okay, so, uh, God has always preserved a remnant. He's always done it. Uh, Elijah thought he was the only guy living in the northern kingdom that still believed in God. And God said, no, I've reserved 3,000 in Israel that still have not bowed the knee to Baal. He always preserves a remnant. So, when they were carried off into Babylon, a remnant came home. Not everybody came home, by the way. You read the text carefully, it says some decided to stay in Babylon. Some Jews decided to stay in Babylon. They said, we got it good here and we're not going home. But he saved the remnant, and he brought the remnant home. Okay. Now, what we see here is, Paul is now applying this to Israel. Okay that he's going to preserve a remnant. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay, display, uh, uh, delay, which means he is going to punish the wicked, but he's going to save a remnant. And ultimately, that remnant is going to be... Um, Jews and Gentiles. And then it says, and as Isaiah predicted, actually it says, he said previously, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we had, would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Okay? If God had not preserved a remnant, if God had not preserved offspring, believers, we would have all been the same as Sodom and Gomorrah under God's wrath and punishment. But he preserved a remnant, he preserved offspring, he preserved believers in Christ. And so, actually, uh, the way it reads is, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. 
But he did leave us offspring. That's the implication of the line. He did leave us offspring, so we're not going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. We're not going to be like. Okay? So he quotes these Old Testament passages, but he expands the meaning because the plan of God's salvation is expanding. It's going to include the Gentiles. Going to include the Gentiles. All right. That is a natural place to stop. And it is a natural place to stop. Because, oh, oh, I ought to say this. Don't follow the chapters and the verses of Scripture as the proper divisions. It's not true. And the story goes like this, and I can't remember his name. Gosh, I learned this first year of seminary, and that was way too long ago. There was a guy who decided that they needed chapters and verses. And the old story was he was on a buggy ride. And it was a long buggy ride, so he started into the scriptures, and every time he put down a number, they hit a bump. And it was always in the wrong place. Okay? Scripture is not neatly divided by our present chapters and verses. So when you look at verse chapter 9, verse 30, those are questions that pertain and will be answered to chapter 10. They go with chapter 10. But they're stuck at the end of chapter 9. So that's why we're going to stop here because this is a logical place to stop because the questions that are going to be asked are going to be answered in chapter 10. But don't get hung up. That's why in the middle of some great verse, there's a, a verse number. It divides a great verse in half because he hit a bump. Okay? It's in the wrong place. It's in the wrong place. All right, questions about what we talked about today? Yes, John. Yes. Uh, I don't know. I do not know if they fully... Certainly chapters 1 through 8. We saw how that's clear as a bell. But this, I don't know if they understood it or not. Because here we are 2,000 later and we have trouble with it. We have trouble with it. I, I think sometimes God puts things in scriptures just to remind us we're not God. To remind us, uh, you know, you're not me and I'm going to do some things. And I, Ultimately, the revelation is to tell us that we can be assured of our salvation. Now, that's ultimately the purpose. But I'm not sure that Roman Christians had a full understanding of what this meant. Because it is very, very difficult. Yes, sir. That sounds right. Robert Stephanus was the guy... Uh, on the buggy ride that divided the scriptures by chapters and verses, and he blew it. Okay? But it's too late to change. We'd screw up the whole world if we changed it now. Okay? All right. Other things? Yes, Jen. Yeah. Uh, the thing that Janet's saying is uh, double predestination is difficult even for those who are Presbyterian, and they get around it by ignoring it. Um, there are other doctrines like that within other denominations. And since we're on the radio, I'm not going into that. But it is true 
that when these doctrines are so irrational or they are so contrary to what people are reading in the Bible, they simply put those aside and move on. And that's what you're saying. Okay? That's what you're saying. So, yes, that does happen. Um, that was one of the things that Luther thought was so important because in, in his day, people simply did not read the Bible. And he was so sure of the power of God through the Word of God. It was his goal to make it possible for people to read the Bible. Which is why he translated the Bible into German. The remarkable thing about what he did was he not only took it from Hebrew and Greek, there were all these dialects of German, many dialects, and they couldn't understand each other. And part of the brilliance of Martin Luther was he took the Hebrew and Greek and translated it into a German that every German could read, in spite of the dialects. The scriptures were put back in the hands of the people. And when people start reading the Bible, great things happen. Okay? Great things happen. But that was one of the important things that he wanted to accomplish. Now, let me say this about, we got two weeks left. We're going through chapter 10. Chapter 10 is going to seem like a piece of cake after chapter 9. Okay? It's much easier, much plainer, and we'll do that the next two weeks. We'll get through chapter 10 finish 9, get through 10, and then we're going to break for the summer, okay? Pick up chapter 11 next, uh, next fall, all right? So that's the plan, and uh, so we'll go from there. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.